0: For a number of reasons, we decided just to stop, o- start over again. And chapter 3 is called Major Biblical Themes. Normally, when I had done this in the past, um, I had just launched into kind of a survey of, of the Old Testament and showing that the kingdom of God is the major theme in the Old Testament and how it develops and so forth. And I kind of realized that you wouldn't be able to track with that if you weren't uh, aware of some of the major themes of scripture. Last week, we dealt with um, the idea of plenary inerrancy of scripture, the idea that the whole scripture is given by God and it's inerrant. It's a doctrine that uh, all of evangelicalism and all reform people hold, Um, but it's a doctrine that not many people, uh, when you question them, know the details and the specifics of if you think you know that doctrine i'd encourage you to consider listening to last week's podcast on it uh where we went into uh, uh what that means in a in a lot more detail than most people normally go into it it's very important to understand the scripture is inerrant and his historically accurate but it wasn't necessarily meant to be interpreted literal that's kind of a modern idea uh the reformers uh uh, used a, a, a German word that was uh, that has the same root as literal, but it means literary. And the fact is, the, the scripture is historically accurate. That's important. And it's without error. But uh, it's also important to understand that not all of the scripture is didactic uh, fact-after-fact teaching. Much of it is teaching by word image, by... by uh, uh, types by foreshadowings uh, by all these kind of uh, uh, things and so um, it's important to inter- interpret scripture in the genre it is you know the uh, song of Solomon his bride is not his, his bride's neck is not really like a tower uh, that's just a simile <laughs> or metaphor so um, she would be if you, uh, Drew a picture of how the bride of christ is uh, or the or the bride of solomon at least depending on your interpretation of song of songs is uh interpreted it she should be a most ugly young lady in our day and age nobody really likes woolly teeth in modern times but uh so uh that was uh roman numeral two and and uh uh i'm gonna move on from there and just get right into today's material We're looking at the concept of eternal decree. If you remember on chapter 2, we we spent three weeks defining the kingdom of God. And God has a foreordained plan. He is outside and above time, and he's outside and above the time-space continuum. And he created all things ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, uh, the, if, if you are a Darwinist or any other kind of humanist, uh, it's inevitable that you, the philosophical basis of your, of your worldview is called materialism. And materialism is the idea that material is eternal. If you think about it deeply enough, some, in all worldviews, something has to be the ultimate reality, someone or something, and that someone or something has to be eternal. Eternal. The problem with material being eternal is that the second law of thermodynamics would mean that it would have all broken down into unharnessable forms. Um, so, uh, material uh, just logically, scientifically, has to have has to have started to exist at a point in time. Uh, the material dimension of the universe cannot be eternal, or it would have ceased to be. So. Um, in, in Christianity, we believe that our God lives outside and above time. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And he, um, created the time space continuum for a reason. And that reason is it's a part of his eternal decree or his eternal plan. Our God declares the ends from the beginnings, and he has always been working toward the same end as he was working in Genesis 1. When man fell, uh, God did not change his eternal decree or his eternal plan. And his eternal decree and his eternal plan is he's going to take thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is going to take the perfect temple sanctuary of heaven, whereby his will is always willingly done, His spirit uh, is perfectly manifest everywhere. There is no need for light because the Lamb of God himself is the light, etc. So uh, he is bringing that perfect holy of holies into the earth. And he does it by progressively unfolding his plan to do so and by progressively accomplishing his plan to do so. And so, uh, God's kingdom plan and creation—if you think about it, if you understand the attributes of God, His immutability, that He cannot change, be influenced, etc.—His uh, eternal creation plan must be His ongoing plan. It must be His current plan uh, because it's it's an outside and above time plan. And it's, it cannot be affected by the events that happen in the time-space continuum. He is inf- affecting the time-space continuum, uh, not the other way around. So let's look at some scriptures that, uh, that tell us this. God's attributes, his purpose, his laws, and his ways never change. Now, we wouldn't be able to fit. Uh, you know, I have kind of a, a rule with myself that I only put on in terms of the number of scriptures, the, the number I can squeeze into front and back of uh, one page on any particular subject. So, if you teach on repentance, there's you know 160 verses on repentance in the New Testament. So you can maybe get uh, 70 or 60 of them discussed in a in an outline like this. So um, from ancient times. Uh, God's ways, his attributes, his purpose, his laws, they never change because they're outside and above time. He and his plans and administrations are progressively revealed, but they're also progressively manifest. The earth is being filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, even as we speak today. That's been happening since God created Adam and it is continuing to happen. And it is unfolding throughout the earth today. So if you want to really understand the news, understand that Isaiah 2 says that it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and all peoples will come to it. This is not a post second coming scripture. This is a prophecy of the first coming of Christ. So let's get into some specific verses, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Um, you might notice that Isaiah is probably the, the, the uh, most favorite prophet of the New Testament speakers, Jesus and the apostles. They uh, tend to quote from Isaiah a lot. Uh, Isaiah says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I like to make plans, I like to make goals, and I like to work toward those. Uh, The last 11 or 12 years in particular have been uh, the most humbling time of my life in terms of making plans, making goals, and working toward those, but... They have proved without a shadow of doubt that I uh, do not declare the end from the beginning. And I have not been able to do this, even though you think I, I'm old and gray. I am not the ancient of days. I haven't been able to do these things from ancient times. I wasn't here when the earth's crust was cooling, so to speak. And uh, my purposes are not always established. Uh, I don't know about you, if you could if you could uh, read yourself into those verses, but I, I'm just guessing, just a wild guess in the dark, that very few of us could say that you declare the end from the beginning, uh, although you might feel like you do it so at, as, at times, especially if you're younger. Uh, uh, from ancient times, uh, you have declared things which have not been done and that your purpose will be established and you'll accomplish all your good pleasure. Now, uh, in in uh, chapter two, we looked at... Uh, a uh, whole section of that of chapter two was about what is the will of God, and although God uh, foreordains and allows evil, although He foreordains and allows that we would have to overcome demonic spirits, satanic angels, our own sin nature, the world system, God's good pleasure is to look down from heaven. We're going to look at a scripture in uh, in, in Genesis six about Noah. And when God looks down, he wants to see his good pleasure, which is reconciliation, redemption, salvation, and and the word soter and all it means, deliverance, healing, uh, deliverance from all the effects of the fall and all forms of evil and all demonic power and so forth. That's what salvation means. It's not a theoretical thing done at an altar call primarily, but it's a it's a ongoing experience that sets you free from from all sin and all death. And uh, God's good pleasure, He wants to look down and be pleased with the sons of men. In fact, that's help you understand the uh, that book that some of you have avoided called Job. in In the book of Job, uh, when the the enemy appears before God, he's wanting to say to God, uh, there's nobody in the earth that you would be pleased with. And God responds, Have you considered my servant Job? I've all I, I have always and will always have people in the earth that I'm pleased with. When Elijah in his time of of testing under the spirit of Jezebel when he's freaking out and so forth. And he says, Lord, they've torn down your altars. They've persecuted your prophets and I alone am left. God points out to Elijah, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, God always has, even in his own church, people who are really faithful to him. And um, at all times and people that he can be pleased with. And so when he says, from ancient times, I declare things which have not been done, my purpose will be established, and I'll accomplish all my good pleasure, his pleasure is that he's going to fill the earth with obedient sons and daughters living in, in a city within the cities, a nation within the nations, a family kind of community way of life where their first priority is God and his family, and they do his good pleasure. When they came to get Jesus, because his Mary and his disciples and Mary and his her sons sons were doubting, and they came to get Jesus because they thought he'd gone out uh, and lost his mind or whatever and gone too far, he said, "Who is my mother and brothers and sisters?" And he points to the community of believers that he's building, and he puts that community above his own natural family, because he says, "Whoever hears the word of God and does it." is my brother and sister and mother. True True Christian community, true church, is not about having the, the right doctrines merely. That's uh, somewhat foundational. It is foundational, but it's about living it together uh, fully and rightly. So Job 20, uh, this is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed. Decreed, there's that word decreed again, to him by God. Then Job answered and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Aren't you glad you're not on the opposite side of God? If you think about it, uh, Satan and his demons are opposite God in purpose and intention, not at all in, in um, omnipotence, omniscience, any, any of God's divine attributes not at all in what's called his incommunicable attributes, the attributes that he alone can have. But Satan's purpose is to thwart God's purpose. And even Job knew that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. It's a fool's errand. Who is that that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 1 Corinthians 2:7. I'm not putting these in any biblically chronological order. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2:7 says, "We speak God's wisdom. Uh, those who are mature in Christ, Paul is talking about, because he's it's a whole chapter about how the natural mind cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Spiritual things are counterintuitive. Without spiritual revelation, you cannot understand spiritual things, and uh, how the the Holy Spirit." Uh, whom we receive when we are born again in Christ and whom we're empowered with when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The reason you want a greater and 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 more comprehensive and, and more regular, uh, more pervasive experience of the Holy Spirit in your life is because the more of the Holy Spirit that's working in your life No one can say Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, except by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Holy Spirit stirred up in your life will never allow you to be lukewarm. He will never allow you to be complacent. He will never allow you the deception of thinking that you know a lot about God in the Bible or Christianity. He will always search the depths of God and help you be reminded that you are yet an infant in Christ, uh, in that there that uh, there's more to see than what you have seen, and that's a good thing. So we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. That wisdom which God predestined before the nine thirty Sunday school. I don't think it reads that way. Before you went to college, before you got so smart. Uh, when you hit puberty and figured everything out and didn't need any more wisdom from anyone. <laughs> uh, no, that's not what it says. He, it's, it's his predestined plan, his predestined mystery before the ages. Now, a mystery is not that mysterious of a thing, pun intended. Um, a mystery in the Bible is something that is self-evidently true, that's obviously true, Yet God has uh, destined it to be in such a way that it can only be revealed by the Spirit of Christ, or by the Spirit of God revealing Christ to us and through us. The mysteries of God, when by the Holy Spirit you see them, when by in Christ you experience them, uh, when by they become part of, of the warp and woof and fabric of your life, they seem only obvious. Yet someone who hasn't gone through that process is totally unable to see them. This is why Jesus said he spoke in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear, then that they their hearts might not understand lest they turn to God. But then he said, blessed are your eyes because yours are the mysteries of the kingdom of God. In Christ, a veil is progressively removed whereby we see more and more of reality. Christ is the way, better translation than truth would be the reality. I am the way, the reality in the life. And uh, all it means to progress in God is to progressively have your eyes opened up to the realities that you can be in church, you can hang around Christians, you can even write, read your Bible, as I'm, I didn't get to listen to John's podcast from last week, but I'm sure that he opened this up. Uh, you know, through Christ and community, we the word is made flesh, and we see and enter the kingdom. Um, but we see things that should have been obvious all along, yet can only be seen in Christ. Psalm 2-7, if you're not familiar with Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a dominion psalm. It's a psalm about the king. Uh, Psalms 1 and 2, in a sense, summarize the whole psalms, and they're the key to understanding the other 148 psalms. Psalm 2-7, he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are a son, today I have begotten you. Now, those of you who are scholars of the Bible will Recognize that that exact line is quoted in Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Psalm 148, 5 and 6 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Now, this decree has been true from all creation. So when God did a couple things right after he made Adam and Eve, he made Adam and Eve, and he told them to be fruitful, to be multiply, to subdue the earth and rule it. That is to take dominion. Now, uh, they weren't taught because they hadn't been fallen yet, uh, and God progressively revealed till he manifested it fully in Christ that to, to rule in the Bible sense is servant rulership. The ruler is the lowliest of servants. The king of, of all the universe decided to be born in a in a manger, a, a, a structure made for animals. He didn't. He wasn't born in a palace, and he didn't assert privileges. He came to serve and set the captives free. So, um. But his decree to be fruitful, to multiply, subdue the earth has never changed. It always was his change. It was given to the first Adam to do that. And since the first Adam and his descendants fell, it was established through the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not for something by and by in the sky after this life. It's the essence of what we live in this life. Then, after he said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and rule it, something most people never preach on or go to, but the next verses say that he made food. And that's important because food is for celebration of covenant. All covenants begin and are reenacted with food celebrations. Okay? It's not some side peripheral thing that we, that we take the communion, we eat of the body and blood of the Lord uh, at our weekly celebration as the church did for its first 1800. The, the modern idea of taking communion only once a month or once a year or something like that was something invented after the Civil War that's a very, most, very modern idea, but it's, it misses the whole heart of, of Christianity because it's the height of our celebration of worship. It's it's the uh, the sitting down at the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus Himself when He took the cup the the cup reserved for Elijah, declaring that He was the, the He was the fulfilling of all the prophets had prophesied. All the prophets were uh, were seeking to know the Spirit of Christ. First Peter, one fourteen or something. Uh, that which within them they were seeking to know and understand what we do know and understand the the uh, celebration of that christ has come and we declare the lord's death his burial and his resurrection in a in a covenant re rein, or reenactment uh not that he dies again but that we uh we tap into the grace of it again over and over and over um, and if you don't think tapping into the grace again is over and over and over, I suggest you not get married because in marriage, the um, um, the covenant and the vows are done one time, just like Christ died once and for all. And you declare your intention to die to self, to uh, no longer live for you first, but for, for God and, and and the bride he's given you or the husband he's given you from then on out, dying to self, living for, living to them, and you enter, have a covenant celebration, that's why the reception is so important, as well as the, the biblical vows, not vows that you make out of your gushiness, but that, that the church makes out of the scriptures. And then you reinforce that covenant or reenact that covenant, re, you reinvigorate it, you might say, regularly in, in, the, in the act called sex. And uh, you look at any marriage that's having trouble, they'll they'll be having trouble there. Uh, Because uh, you look at any Christian who's having trouble, and they're not going back to the gospel every day. They're trying to live this as if you could live it by performance, that you could live it by your own efforts, you could live it out of your own wits and your own wisdom, that you can lean on your own understanding, uh, and you're not going back to the table of fellowship uh, daily. So, um, again, uh, his decree is always the same. It started in Genesis the same, and he gave them a commission, and he gave them food for covenant celebration. That's why I maintain that the eating after church for an hour or so, or whatever we, however long people stay, That's just as important a part of the meeting as the 930 Sunday school or any other part. So, uh, Jeremiah 522 says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. An eternal decree. Do you know uh, one of the funny things about scientific paradigms in the philosophy of science is that current scientists always assume an idea that's sometimes called uniformitarianism, that the present laws of physics, chemistry, biology, etc., have always been the laws of physics, chemistry, and so forth. But none of us are old enough to know that. That's an assumption that has to first assume the non-existence of God. He makes the decrees of what the physical laws are, and if he wants to change how the whole way the Earth works, as he did at the flood, he can. Um, Daniel four seventeen and twenty four says, "This sentence is by decree of the angelic washers." Hey, is it okay if i turn down the heat for just a little bit or i may need, i may need jason to uh i'm gonna turn it down one degree jason i may need a roller chair because i'm feeling a little queasy here um jeremiah 5:22. we did daniel four um This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. Who are the angelic watchers? but representatives of the eternal God carrying out his messages as he he wants them? I'll I'll motion for it if I need to go there. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know. Here's what God wants the living people to know, that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows on it whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. Hey, yeah, Nathan, go ahead and bring that up to me, will you? Um, boy, it's warm. Is there no else hot, or just me? Or too thick of a shirt, for one thing. Just set it right here next to this stool, will you? Thanks. Thanks. Um, he said, "Can you get me another water? Get that water bottle back, because I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here." Okay, so um, where were we? Hebrews thirteen eight and thirteen twenty and twenty one. Couple uh, Hebrews thirteen is flat out one of the great chapters you should uh, read many times. But in verse eight, he says, "Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever." It's kind of amazing that the current church, we sort of expect Jesus Christ to be someone different. We really do. But the ministry that he had in the Gospels is his ongoing ministry. If, uh, thank you, Sid, if we have anything less in our experience, the problem's not in what God intends to do, the problem's in our receptivity. Just like there are thousands of uh, radio signals in this room, but you need the right equipment and dialed into the right frequency or channel to to receive them. God is, God is, Jesus is the same. He's still cleansing lepers. He's still casting out demons. He's still healing the sick. He's still telling Lazarus to rise from the dead. There's no reason to believe his ministry was any different. The whole point of his Last Supper discourse in John 14, 15, and 16 is that that he's going to send the Holy Spirit who will continue to do the same things through the church. That's sort of the whole direction and whole point of Scripture, yet we have this sort of unbelief thing that we've developed since the Enlightenment. Uh, that acts very much like when Jesus was in Nazareth, he could not do many miracles there because of the unbelief of the Nazarenes. We have a lot of unbelief to repent of. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 20, I love this. Now may God, the God of peace, who by the blood of the eternal covenant, uh, who, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the seat sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us what is pleasing before him. Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, theologians sometimes call that the covenant of redemption, and they separate that from the from the covenant of um, grace. But really, they're one in the same eternal covenant, that the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, God, the son being eternally begotten, figure that one out, uh, that, that from all eternity, before there was a time space continuum and using words like before betray that we're not really able to grasp it, uh, in eternity there is and was, and always will be a covenant between the father and the son that he would come to earth and redeem man. And when he became a man, uh, he Once he entered his public ministry, from there on out for all eternity, he would continue his public ministry until uh, the end of time, until the second coming of Christ. Acts 4:27 27 and 30. Uh, this is, of course, in the famous uh, passage where Peter and John were commanded to not speak anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus in the city of Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin. And they uh, say uh, whether it's right in verse 20 of Acts 4, they say whether it's right in the sight of God to obey man rather than God, you decide, but we can't stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. The reason I love that verse is because what they're claiming is they're claiming we can't help it. And it's the only place in the Bible where the I can't help myself syndrome is accepted by God. Many of us have tried the I can't help it syndrome with God. We first learned it when we were kids, and, and we tried it out on our parents, right? <laughs> but I can't help it. <laughs> and uh, um, th- there's nowhere in Scripture that the Lord allows you to get away with such uh, deception, except right here. They, they said, we, we can't stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. And it seems like uh, from the context, the Lord was okay with that. <laughs> was, they gave it, uh, when re- with regard to proclaiming the resurrection of Christ in his present kingdom, they, uh, they went with a uh, we-can't-help-it defense, <laughs> and uh, the Lord allowed them to do it. <laughs> I, I like that very much. So, um, now, I may mean, the God in peace, of the by, who by the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep of our Lord Jesus. Now, he would have stopped there if what we're saying is not true about the ongoing, continuing ministry of Christ. He's evoking the God of the eternal covenant to what? To leave us alone, to have us pray a sinner's prayer, uh, do do his minimal amount, like do our religious duty by going to church and trying to uh, get a hear a good sermon and listen to a good worship band so that we don't have to take seriously being equipped to start doing the Great Commission and so forth. But no, he's saying, may that God of peace equip you with every good thing to do his will. And we've already established his will is, is that you would become an ambassador of reconciliation. If it'll help you, maybe you should get a, you know, like we have these grace Christian fellowship cards maybe put on the back of it, your name and your title, ambassador of reconciliation. You know, I'm an ambassador from another kingdom. And, uh, You know, when you're an ambassador from another kingdom, you can't just dress any old way. You can't just have any old plans or priorities. You're to represent the kingdom you're from. One of the reasons uh, the lack of scripture knowledge and Bible reading today is such a problem is how can you be an ambassador from a kingdom whose king you don't know that very, very well? In whose word you haven't studied in detail, how can you represent him right in situations if you don't actually know what he wrote? So Acts uh, four twenty, uh, we it started into that one and got sidetracked and went back to Acts 13, or Hebrews thirteen twenty. Um, after after they're threatened, I like this. This is right in the middle of the of their great prayer meeting. And they say this for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They go on by the way, to quote Psalm two about how the Gentiles have roared, roared and the people are devising a, a vain thing. They're taking their stand together against the Lord and against his Christ. Right? So uh, after they uh after they mention Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all these people are trying to stop the foreordained plan of God. All of those people are opposing him. Uh, but the earth is the Lord's, the fullness of thereof, and even his enemies in the end, uh, promote his will. Um, so they say, uh, the, you know, again, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel, uh, opposed but god did whatever his hand and his in his predetermined purpose had planned to occur psalm 22 all the suffering servant passages of isaiah etc god had predetermined that his that his sinless spotless lamb would die on behalf of the people be risen, buried and be risen again and all this opposition to it putting a guard at the tomb, uh, and all these kind of things, none of it could stop the plan of God. His His purpose is predestined and determined. Uh, and now, Lord, take note of your threats and grant your bondservants may uh, speak your word with all confidence. Uh, Ephesians 4, he predestined us to adoption. Flipping over, Numbers 23, 19. I wasn't noticing my time, so I got I to gotta move on. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? I want to get through at least Roman numeral four and we can pick up at Roman numeral five with another message on a biblical view of history next week, which we may skip since that's the whole point of chapter 15 in this series. But for now, it's very important to see this. In Genesis 6, 6, when the Lord was sorry or regretted that he had made man on the earth, and that it was grieved to him this was not god changing his eternal predestined purpose this was part of god's foreordained purpose god is able to you, you, to grieve uh over our sin and so forth but it's still all part of his larger plan um exodus 32:14 after the lord uh after moses interceded Says the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he should do. Now, there's an idea of, uh, called rightly discerning the scriptures. The King James says rightly dividing. The problem is is that most people who take a, a divided view of scripture called dispensationalism never put it back together. So I want to help us discern this correctly. Um, God, when God it says that God changed his mind or God relented, you have to factor into God has always determined from all time that man would fall, he's allowed that, that there would be the evil people of God. We're gonna see two major themes of the scripture is that there's an evil people and then there's a people of God. And uh, the evil people always oppose the people of God and the people of God themselves continually uh, forsake and and fail in the covenant. And we're gonna see how, when we look at covenant history in the next three weeks, we're gonna see how God has always planned that a covenant is supposed to be two parties doing their thing. But in God's covenants, it's always factored in that we would be the covenant breakers, and therefore he would be the covenant redeemer, and that he would die on behalf of those recipients of the covenant who uh, failed in the covenant, as we do. So uh, in doing so, God has ordained intercessors He's ordained prophets. He's ordained the church to be priests and prophets in our day. And he's ordained us to intercede. And that was actually his predetermined plan that in a sense, it would look like he changed his mind because he determined for us to be used of God to intercede and to bring reconciliation and redemption and avoid the the catastrophes and the judgment that were to come. I probably uh, wish I had given a little bit more time to that. I'm not sure if I could have made it that much more clear, but you need to understand that the scripture is one. Jesus himself said the scripture cannot be broken. You cannot be a Christian and think that there are errors all through the scriptures, uh, because you are are basically saying that Jesus has a lot of errors. I personally cannot worship a God that I believed had a lot of errors. i worship a god because i believe i have a lot of heirs and and uh uh so what what whenever the scripture talks about god changing his mind in the face of daniel interceding or moses interceding or amos and and so forth uh god predetermined that he would raise up someone to do that and that that itself would be his part of his unfolding redemptive plan where whereby it looked as if the proper thing to come into this situation was judgment and judgment in some cases of a very radical nature god was in the case of moses interceding that we read there god was telling moses to step aside and he was going to wipe out the whole nation of israel and he was going to start over again with moses and make moses a great nation and if you think about moses humility he was offering Moses to be Abraham and Moses in the, in the schemes of the things of God. And Moses uh, cared more about God's reputation and how he would look to the Egyptians and the et cetera. And so he interceded and in a sense changed God's mind, but God always intended for him to do so. I hope that's clear. Amen.